your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. We're looking today at the beginning part of chapter 6, and you can find that on page 979 in the red Bibles and the chairs around you. As you're finding your place, let me just give you a sense of where we're going over the next uh, weeks and months. Uh, We're in the final stretch of our study of this book of Ephesians that started uh, back at the beginning of the school year. Uh, After today, we've got probably about three more sermons in Ephesians. Uh, We're going to take a break the next couple Sundays for Palm Sunday and Easter. And so we'll finish up Ephesians uh, by the end of May. Uh, There may be a Sunday in there or two where we'll have a one-off sermon on something as the Lord leads. And then uh, the middle of June, uh, we'll begin a new sermon series that is going to take us all the way through the next school year. Uh, normally try to do something a little more thematic during the summer and then start something in the fall, but because of the study that we're going to do, and as I was looking at it, I realized we're really going to need to start this summer. So starting mid-June, we're actually going to be working our way through the book of Revelation. Uh, and so I want to ask you to be praying about that. Uh, it's not something that I uh, was super excited about initially, uh, but the Lord uh, kind of guided and directed that way. Uh, and so your prayers would be very much appreciated as we prepare uh, to work our way through that uh, very interesting and somewhat challenging uh, book, but very encouraging book. Today we're looking at Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and so I'd invite you to listen as I read to you from Paul's writing to the Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you. And that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we are so thankful that you give us your word and the Holy Spirit to help us to understand it. So we pray that here in these very moments you would open our eyes and ears to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Impress your word into our hearts and minds that we might not only believe it, but that we might truly live as your people in this week to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know anything of the Brothers Grimm fairy tales, you know that although they're often referred to as children's fairy tales, some often they're, they're uh, pretty sketchy and sometimes uh, even a little disturbing. And uh, one of those tells the tale, a fairy tale, of a little old man who was growing old and uh, was needing more help to be taken care of. And so he moved in, in his old age, uh, with his son and his daughter-in-law. This old man was particularly messy at the supper table. He was always spilling his food and splattering his food on himself and, and around him. And as he was living with his son and his son's wife... Uh, They really began, particularly the wife, began to really uh, be upset with her father-in-law and the way that he was living and even becoming how, uh, becoming uh, even a hatred in his heart because of how messy he was. And over the years, the daughter-in-law began to turn the the heart of the son against his own father. Uh, One day in particular, the father was especially messy at the table, and the wife had had enough. And so she got the father up from the table and put him into the other room, adjacent to the the dining room, and stuck him in the corner and gave him a a bowl of porridge and made him sit there to eat his his dinner. And for weeks he would sit there and eat dinner, just blanking or staring blankly at the wall. One day, 
After that time period, he dropped his bowl of porridge on the ground and it broke and spilled everywhere. And the wife's anger exploded. She took the old man out to the barn and pulled the pig trough out and said, if you're going to act like a pig, then you can eat like a pig. And she made him eat from the pig's trough. Sometime later, the son of that husband and wife who had taken in their father and father-in-law, their, their son, they saw him carving this beautiful piece of wood. They asked him, what, what are you carving? What are you making? And the son said, oh, I'm, I'm making a feeding trough so that I'll have something to feed you out of when you get older. The fairy tale goes on to say that the husband and wife were cut to the heart and began to weep and went and got their father and father-in-law and brought him back into the house and gave him a comfortable seat and began to treat him with the dignity and the honor that he deserved as their father. It's a fairy tale, but it is a picture of what happens when there's a breakdown in the God-intended ways for households to, to work. And Paul's talking something about that this morning for us in these verses from Ephesians 6. Paul is writing this letter, as we've been looking at over these many months, to Christians in and around the area of Ephesus in the first century. And he was writing to encourage them with the truth of the gospel and to motivate them to live like who they should be in light of what they believe about the gospel. And we've been looking about how chapters 1 through 3, Paul explains to them what is true. He gives them rich, deep theology of who God is and all of the redemptive work that has been accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last chapters we've been looking at, in chapters 4 through 6, he begins to tell them, okay, you know now what is true, so now here is what you're supposed to do in response. How you are to live, how you are to walk in this life. With a life that is changed by God's grace through the gospel. And the last time we were looking at the end of chapter 5 and the instructions that Paul was giving for husbands and wives and their relationship together. And today, Paul's addressing another relationship within the house. He's addressing the relationship between parents and children. There are only four verses here. But there is a lot that Paul has to say to us about how both parents and children are to live in response to the gospel of grace. So let's look and see what he says. First, what he says to the children, and then what he says to the parents. He speaks to the children in verses 1 through 3. Children, he says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Now, who is he speaking to particularly here? You see the word right there at the beginning of verse 1, children. It's the Greek word techna. And that word was used not primarily to talk about a specific age, but to talk about a relationship. So it's talking about children in general. It even could be referring to adult children who were no longer in the house. That's the term that he's using. And I think that there's some application for all of us who are children in some way or another, whether we are young children or whether we are adult children. I do think that Paul's particular context here 
as we can see from the whole passage, is that he's thinking about young children who are still in the home, who are still being raised by their parents. He's not speaking about infants necessarily. He's not speaking primarily to adult children, although that certainly there is application there for them. But he's speaking to those young people who are in their homes growing up under the supervision and accountability of their parents. I want you to notice something before we move on any further. Paul Paul is assuming that these young people are in the context of the worship service in Ephesus. That's where this letter would have been read together in the worship service. As Paul wrote to them, they would gather together as the church in that area and they would read Paul's letter. And the assumption is that those young people are there with their families in the worship service, that they're able to understand what's being said, that they're able to reflect on their own relationship with the Lord. That was a big contrast to how that culture treated young people. And Paul's going head on against that culture that really looked at young people as a nuisance. And we're, we're willing to treat them however they wanted to in terms of whatever was convenient. But it's also a reminder just quickly for us this morning here at Trinity. Children are welcome in our worship service. We, we delight in them and we see them as part of our church family. Just as Paul did with this letter. So what was Paul's instructions to these children, to these young people in their homes? Well, he gave two and two things to them. And the first one is that they were to obey. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, he says. That's the strong word. It's an imperative. It's a command. You are to do this. This is something that is a non-negotiable. Young people, you are to obey your parents. The word that he uses is actually made up of two smaller words, the word under and the word to listen. It means to listen under. It has a sense of intentional listening and then submitting yourself under what you are being instructed. It's listening. It's it's heeding. It's submitting to it's doing what you're told. It's obeying. But Paul's speaking here not only about outward obedience, just doing what they say, doing what their parents say. He's speaking about more than just outward obedience. He's talking about obeying our parents from within, from within our hearts. Now, how do we know that? Well, where does Paul go to prove his point? Verses 2 and 3, he quotes from Exodus chapter 20. He quotes the fifth commandment. What we recited earlier in our service. And the word there is that we are not only to obey, we are to honor our fathers and our mother. Now, both the Greek word and the Hebrew word for honor have a sense of weight to them. It's more than just outwardly obeying, but kind of grumbling in your hearts. This word means honor, respect, reverence. It's something that happens within. It is something that begins in the heart. He's talking about an attitude, a heart obedience. So what he's saying to the young people is that they are to reverence, they are to honor in their attitudes, their parents, and obey them in their outward actions in terms of what they are being instructed to do. Now, before we move on to consider why the reasons why they should do this. Just a, a quick caveat, a quick, quick kind of qualification. What if parents are telling children to do something that is not right, that is against God's word? 
that is against the will of the Lord. Now, with great thankfulness and by God's grace, I can say with some amount of confidence that that would be a very rare occurrence in this room. So the norm, young people, is that you obey your parents and honor your parents from your hearts and in your actions. But on those occasions when our parents tell us to do something that is against the Lord, we are called to primarily and first and foremost honor the Lord in what we do and serve the Lord and obey the Lord. The norm should be our obedience And disobedience would only be needed in that rare occasion where we're being told to do something that is not right, that is against the Lord's word. What what is the reasons that Paul gives young people for why they should obey and honor the Lord? Well, he gives them three here in these verses. The first is at the end of verse 1. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? It's right. There's something about just the way that God has created His creation. There's a moral law. There's, there's this natural law. There's this general revelation that God has given to all cultures and societies that He's woven into the fabric of our societies that children should obey their parents. It really has this sense of every culture, every society recognizing this truth. And if you if you think about it throughout history, there are cultures and societies throughout the world, throughout history that have this as a very high value. It's because it's right. It's part of God's it's part of the fabric of God's creation. And when it's not in place and not in fo- not followed, we see great destruction and chaos. But that's not the only reason that Paul gives, because he goes on in verses two and three to quote from Exodus 20 and the fifth commandment. It's not simply because it's right that children should obey their parents. It's also because that's what God's word says to do. It's not only kind of this general sense of God's revealed will to the the creation that everybody has a sense of. But his special revelation, his particular revelation that he's given to his people tells us. Children, you are to honor and obey your parents. And notice he gives a couple motivations that come from his word in verse uh, 3, the beginning part of verse 3. He says we ought to do this because it may go well, that it may go well with you. He's quoting again from Exodus 20. He's quoting from the Old Testament and he says, children, obey and honor your parents that it may go well with you. That is that when children obey their parents... It goes better for them than when they disobey. There's a blessing for you young people when you obey your parents. And when you don't obey your parents, it doesn't go well for you. You know that probably firsthand. But it also doesn't go well for your parents when you're not obeying them. There's another motivator that he says. It's not just that it may go well with you, but he goes on in verse 3 to say, and that you may live long in the land. Now, the original reason why why this was written back in Exodus chapter 20 was the people of God were getting ready to move into the promised land. And he's reminding them that as you keep my word, as you keep the law of God, you will live long in the land that I'm giving to you, Israel. Now, that no longer particularly applies to us in terms of that nation and that piece of land, but 
Paul uses a general word here for just land in general, the world in general. And so the principle is still in application. When children obey their parents, not only does it go well for them, but he says it also that they will live long. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I don't think he's meaning to be uh, uh, that it's a guarantee in every situation. He's giving us principles here. The general principle is that when children obey and honor their parents, it is good for them. Their lives are easier. Their lives are more enjoyable. Their lives are blessed and they experience a longer life. And as if that's not enough of a reason that it's just right and God's word says that we are to obey our parents, he gives them another one. Beginning at the end of verse 1, he says, children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. In other words, as a result of your relationship with the Lord, you should obey your parents. As you think about all that God has done for you and all of the blessings that he has given to you, as you think about the fact that God has sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, as that grips your heart, as that gospel of grace and love and mercy grips your heart, then you should desire to obey your parents. Why? Because when you do it, you are obeying the Lord Jesus himself in response for all that he's done for you. Paul's saying there are many reasons why children ought to obey their parents because it's the right thing to do because the Bible tells them so and also because of the gospel of grace and love gripping our hearts and motivating us to do what the Lord says. Now, although, as I mentioned earlier, Paul's addressing children who are still growing up in the home here primarily, I do think there's still some application for those of us uh, who have parents who are still living Paul is calling us to honor and to respect and to care for the well-being of our parents as best is possible. Again, making the honor and obedience to the Lord first and primary, but seeking out ways to respect and honor and care for our aging and elderly parents as much as is possible. That might involve physically taking care of aging parents when the Lord calls us to do that. It could mean, and honoring and obeying our parents as adult children could mean that we need to look out for ways and discern ways that we can tell them how they were a good parent. And it might mean that we don't respond in kind when our parents say hurtful or unhealthy things to us. But I do think there's some application here for those of us who are adult children, even as Paul's particularly addressing the younger ones. So this is what he says to the children. Children, you are to obey and honor your parents. Why? Because it's right, because the Bible tells you to, and because of the gospel of grace and love and mercy. Now, what does he say to the parents? He only has one verse for the parents here. But it is a verse packed with information and motivation. Now, who is he speaking to? He says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, why is he only addressing the fathers? Well, if you know anything about that culture, both the Greco-Roman culture as well as the Jewish culture, 
put the primary responsibility on the fathers for the education and the discipline of their children. And in addition to that, the biblical tradition says that the father is the head of the household and is both responsible and accountable to the Lord for how he leads his home. And certainly those things are in Paul's mind as he's writing these words. But even saying that, I think it's fair and I think it's appropriate and right to say from the context that Paul's speaking to parents in general. I mean, after all, verse 1, he addresses both parents, not just fathers. So he's, I think here as he says fathers, he's, he's acknowledging some cultural and the biblical aspects of what is true. But, but he's speaking to parents in general here. Not only fathers. And so can I just draw one obvious implication for us before we move on to see what he says to parents. And that is that parents are to raise their children. That's an obvious implication. But what he's saying there is that the parents have responsibility and they are accountable to the Lord for raising their children. Paul does not address grandparents here. He does not address public school officials here. He does not address Christian school officials here. He doesn't address nannies or daycares. He doesn't even address church officials here. He addresses parents because he's saying, parents, it is your responsibility to raise your children. Now, that doesn't mean, and there's nothing wrong with making use of those other things. Those are good resources that can be used and can be helpful. But as parents, we must not turn over the responsibility of raising and training our children to anybody else. It's our responsibility. And that goes even for the church. The church has a responsibility to come alongside of the parents and to assist them and to encourage them and to resource them and to train them. But even the church is not the primary responsibility of raising the children. It is the parents. We have a robust children's ministry and youth ministry program here at Trinity, but it's secondary, not primary, to raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So if the Lord provides children in our midst, that means that it might require that we have to change how we're living our lives. It it may mean a career change. It may mean that we have to give up some of our personal preferences. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have a career or you can't have personal preferences if you have children. But it does mean that those things cannot detract from our primary responsibility of parenting in a biblical way as Paul is teaching us here. Now you may be sitting there and you may say, well, what if I don't have children? Or what if my children are grown and gone out of the house? Well, I think the principles here are still in application for you. After all, if you're a member here at Trinity then every time that we have a a baptism of a covenant child, you take a vow along with the family. As members of this congregation, we vow to walk with and to help and to encourage and to assist the families of the child that's being baptized. So the principles here are still in application for all of us as we pledge our hearts together to see these little ones grow up in the Lord. But what does Paul say about What the parents are to be doing. Notice in verse 4, he gives them both a negative prohibition as well as a positive admonition. 
He tells them something they're not supposed to do and something that they are supposed to do. So what does he say that they're not supposed to do? It's at the beginning of verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to provoke a child to anger? He's not talking here about healthy, appropriate discipline that might make our kids a little bit upset. Of course that is going to happen. He's not talking about that kind of healthy and appropriate discipline. What he's speaking about here is a demand of things that are unreasonable. Of harsh demands. Of being genuinely unfair. Of being arbitrary in what we instruct our children or in the discipline that we give to them. A constant nagging, humiliating them, shaming them. Paul is speaking here when he says that we ought not to provoke our children to anger. He's talking about an intentional poking and picking in order to irritate and make them angry to exasperate them, some translations use. Parents, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't exasperate them in these ways. But, he goes on in verse 4 to say there is something you are supposed to do. You are, he says, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? The word there, bring them up, is a very interesting word. It means to nourish. And interestingly, it's the same word that was used back in chapter 5 in verse 29 when Paul was talking about husbands and wives and, and, and husbands loving their wives as they love themselves. And in verse 29 he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. That's the same word that he's using here for the, the role of parents to nourish, to bring up their children, to nourish them. John Calvin, uh, when he translated this verse, he translated it as, let them be fondly cherished. He's, he's talking here about a gentle, kind, nourishing, encouraging care of our children. And notice he gives them two tools for doing that. They are to raise them up in the discipline of the Lord. That's the Greek word paideia. It's a very positive word, has positive connotations. It means to train, to model, to teach, to encourage. That, that we are to model, to teach, and encourage true and beautiful and good beliefs and actions in our children. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 12 when we read about discipline. It says in Hebrews 12, for the moment, all discipline, all paideia, Seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what we're to be. We're to be raising up our, our children. We're to be nourishing our children in the discipline, in the paideia, in the, in the modeling, in the encouraging, in the teaching, in the training of the Lord. He has another word there that he uses, not just the discipline of the Lord, but the instruction. That's the Greek word nuthasia. That one has kind of slightly negative connotations. It has more of this idea of warning or admonishing or a, a verbal correction, a, a verbal rebuke. 
And both of those are the ways that parents are to raise up their children and modeling what it is to, to, to live as a Christian and to love the Lord and also to rebuke and to encourage and challenge and verbally correct when needed. Let me give you a quick illustration of what happens when that doesn't happen. A friend of mine tells the story of when he went on a trip to an amusement park with his children. Uh, many, this is many years ago. And they were waiting in line uh, to get on a train ride that took them around the amusement park. And the, li- the line was long and it was not moving fast. And, and as they got to the front of the line, uh, they, there was this young boy in front of them, probably about five or six years of age. And, you know, five or six year old boy really can it can be hard to have to wait in line like that for a ride for a long time. And he became more and more impatient and restless. And eventually the young boy climbed up on the railing that was dividing the line as it moved toward the train. And he sat up on the railing. And he was sitting on it in such a way that it was very difficult for people to get around him and to keep the line moving. And the mother saw what happened very quickly. And so she reacted and she said, Johnny, come down from there. Johnny looked at her. Didn't bat an eye and didn't move a muscle. And then my friend recounted the litany of responses that came after that from the mother. Johnny, come down there from there right now. Johnny, come down. I'm not going to tell you again. Johnny, I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a half. Now, Johnny, I mean it. Johnny, I'm going to tell your father when we get home. Okay, Johnny, you stay there. I'm going to leave you if you don't come down. Johnny, please, please, please come down. I'll get you an ice cream cone. The friend of mine said that they ended up squeezing by Johnny as a family when it came time for them to get on the train ride. And for all that they know, Johnny's in his 20s now, still sitting on that railing (laughs) with his mother trying to get him down. Right? We've all been there. Either as Johnny or as parents. It's an example of what Paul is telling us not to do here in these verses. Now, I'm not suggesting that what Paul is saying here is easy for the children or for the parents. It's not easy to to wrap our minds around it. It's not easy to implement it. I understand that. And so we need to have some good motivation for why we should be doing this. Why, Why does Paul tell parents that they should be this way and that they should do this? The first thing is really about the parents because he tells them in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline instruction of what? Of the Lord. It's not just some arbitrary discipline and instruction that we come up with. He's specifically telling us that when we discipline our children, when we instruct our children, we are to be doing it with the mindset of the Lord. That our goal should be to glorify God. First and foremost... It is to glorify the Lord in raising these children. And the only way we're going to be able to do that well is if we as parents are resting in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Because if we are looking for security and our identity in our children, then we'll be more focused on trying to get them to like us, to be happy, 
than we will with honoring the Lord. And Paul says, our discipline, our instruction of our children is to be done of the Lord. That is to be our focus. That is to be our motivation. That the gospel of God's grace and mercy would be so real to us personally that we would be driven first and foremost to glorify the Lord and how we parent. But there's another motivation here. Because he said in verse 1, children obey the parents in the Lord. Our discipline, our instruction is to be for the glory of God, but it's also to be for the heart of our children. We're not seeking simply to change their behavior and make our lives easier. We're going after their hearts and we want their hearts to embrace the gospel of grace. And so our teaching, our training, our discipline, our instruction is to be pointing them to the gospel over and over and over again. That that would be a motivator for us. That we want them to love Jesus. So much that they would desire to follow him. Let me finish with giving you a picture of what happens when we disobey what Paul is telling us here in chapter 6. And when we disobey the fifth commandment. Some of the best illustrations of disobeying God come right from the scriptures themselves. I'm very thankful that God hasn't shied away from giving us some of the gritty details of how some even people that were very key in the redemptive history of God's work failed to obey and follow His Word. And there might not be a better example, a better illustration of that way of failing in these ways than the house of David. The problem started with David himself. You know the story. He looked and saw a young girl and had lust after her and then used his power and authority to take advantage of her and to have an affair with her. And Bathsheba got pregnant. And so to cover it up, David lied and eventually ended up killing her husband so that he could cover his own sin and shame. Problems continued in David's household. One of David's sons, Amnon, dishonored violated his own sister, Tamar. And then another son, Absalom, in retaliation for what his brother had done to his sister, killed Amnon. And then Absalom fled away. David went after him and brought him back. But interestingly, we're never told in the Scriptures that David dealt with Absalom's sin, disciplining him, teaching him, instructing him. Absalom eventually grew up and he hatched a plan to take over his own father's kingdom. And he was going to do it by force, going to war with his dad. David was forced to put together an army to to protect the kingdom. And David called in his commander of his armies, Joab. And he said, as we're going to war with Absalom, I want you to look for him. And when you find him, do not cause any harm. Do not allow him to be killed. Bring him to me. Joab eventually found him, 
During a battle, Absalom was riding a donkey and as he had flowing locks of hair and he went under a tree and his hair got caught in the branches and he was hanging in the tree by his hair and Joab found him. The commander of the armies found him and we read in the passages that Joab rode up to Absalom and took three spears and plunged them into his chest. And then they got him down out of the tree and they beat him and they killed him. Why not? His own commander wasn't following biblical principles and obeying the, the word of God. Why, why should Joab be any different? The men eventually returned to David to give a report. And David repeatedly asks, is it well with the young man Absalom? Echoing that promise in the fifth commandment in Ephesians 6. Eventually the report was given to David that things were not well with Absalom and that he was dead. And what we have when David gets that word in 2 Samuel 18 is one of the most emotional, one of the most heart-wrenching passages in all of Scripture. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, as he, wept he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. It's the cry of a father who is failing to keep the fifth commandment, failing to follow Paul's instructions in Ephesians 6. And if it's honest, if we're honest, it's our cry too. Because we've failed to obey and to honor our parents as we're supposed to. And we have provoked our children. And we have not brought up our children in the way that we're supposed to. But hear the amazing hope and grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What David was unable to do for his child, God does for his children. Our Father in heaven sent the greater and the ultimate David, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rescue and redeem his children. Even though we deserve to die for all of the ways that we fail to obey and honor, the ways that we provoke our children to anger, the ways that we don't bring them up correctly, even though we deserve to die for all of those things, God sent His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, one who would live under all of the rules and laws of God, perfectly obeying every single one of them, and then offering His life as a sacrifice in our place. Giving His life so that we could have life. So that anyone and everyone who trusts in Jesus gets the perfect obedient record of Jesus' righteousness credited to their record. And everyone who trusts in Jesus has their imperfect record put on Him and crucified on the cross. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the more that that unconditional grace and love of our Heavenly Father grips our hearts and our minds, the more that we'll be able to live as Paul is instructing, as children who are obeying and honoring our parents, and as parents who are not provoking our children to anger, but who are bringing them up in the discipline and instruction and love of the Lord. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the gospel of your grace because we fail so many times. We have this past week and we will on this week to come. And so we are thankful for your grace and mercy. And we pray that your grace, your love, your faithfulness would be so real to us and would so grip our hearts and our minds and our imaginations that as we go out this week, we would be empowered and motivated to live as you've called us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, his first letter to the Corinthian church, he gives them instructions about the Lord's Supper. And he said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul tells us in this passage that we should come to the Lord's Supper in a worthy way. What does that mean? Well, he goes on to say that we ought to examine ourselves. We have to be reflecting and thinking about ourselves. What do we do? How do we do that? Well, am I a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I trusting in Him alone for my salvation for my acceptance before my Father in heaven? Am I a baptized believer who has made a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I've connected myself with a visible church. could be Trinity or another church that believes the, the Word of God is true and that our salvation is by grace alone in Christ alone. Do I, do I genuinely desire, certainly not perfect, but genuinely desire to turn away from my sin and to live for the Lord in this coming week. And Paul says, then come in a worthy way. Come and eat and drink. Be fed spiritually with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Be reminded of the Lord's body, the Lord's blood given for us that we might be cleansed, that we might be the people of God to live for him. And be strengthened in our faith as the Holy Spirit takes what we're doing here and strengthens us so that we might live for Him this week ahead. So if that's you this morning, then we invite you to partake as the trays come around. Eat and drink, be reminded, be strengthened in your faith. But if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then please allow the elements to uh, pass you by. And instead, use this time to ask the Lord to reveal Himself to you. There's some prayers that are printed for you in the back of the bulletin that you could use during this time. Let's pause for a moment and pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to bless this table and to thank Him for giving it to us. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Lord's Supper, this means of grace, a means by which you point us once again to the Lord Jesus Christ, point us outside of ourselves to His work on the cross, a, a time that you give us strength and nourishment spiritually as we come in faith. So we pray that you would do that. Would you bless this special table and use it for that special purpose? We desire, Father, to love you and to know you and to obey you better. So would you do this to that end? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.